studying this New Testament letter this fall, and uh, we're going to wrap. We might hear from him again in the spring, but this is going to wrap up our series. So James chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. And if you don't have a Bible, the, uh, the text is there in the order of worship. Uh, Katrina happened my first summer in Greenville. I, uh, my family moved here at the end of May 2005, and Hurricane Katrina hit at the end of August 2005, and that's one way I remember it. And, uh, and it was memorable to me because I'm from Mississippi, and the Katrina actually, as far as where it hit, it hit the state of Mississippi, but an area outside of Mississippi that, that uh, appropriately got a lot of attention was New Orleans and because of the flooding and the breaking of the levees. And you know, there's a lot of, there were a lot of side news stories that went along with that. And one recurring story was that whether or not this could have stopped what happened, there were all kinds of improvements that were needed in the levee system as it existed and in the pump stations as, as they functioned. And here, here was the maddening thing, is that there was recognition of the need of that, and there was authorization to make these improvements. And you know, the legis- legislature had said, yeah, absolutely need to do it. Their, their funding had been earmarked for it and provided for it. Where that ended up, don't know. But uh, it was there. And there was the need for it, and there was the rationale for it, and there was the capability for it. We've got people that can do that kind of stuff, Army Corps of Engineers and other people. And it wasn't done. It just was not done. And again, whether or not that could have staved off the full effects of what happened uh, at, at Katrina is, is sort of outside the point. It just, everything was there for it to be done. It just wasn't done. Now, James in this passage is doing what Paul does in several of his letters, what the writer of uh, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament does toward the end of that, of that book. And it's this strong exhortation, almost right at the end, to pray. Now, here's the crazy thing. We have all the need in the world to pray. And, and certainly, we, certainly, we have got big-time authorization to do so. The apostles, you know, they'll write these letters, and at the end of it, this will be this big thing that they stamp at the end just to say, we have got to do this. You've got to pray. And the ultimate authorization is not only the life of Jesus, because as Jake said, he, he is the template of what obeying God looks like. Besides being the atonement for sin, he shows you what holy living, an obedient life looks like. And he would often withdraw to lonely places to what? Study? Or think about leadership? He would often withdraw to lonely places to pray. And he taught about prayer and he modeled prayer, and he facilitated prayer. He said things about prayer that he didn't say anything else uh, in the Christian life about. For instance, uh, the apostles come on a guy, and, uh, and this is when they are apostles. They can do miracles. They can heal people. Uh, they, can, uh, they can cast demons out. And they come to a guy, and they can't cast the demon out, and Jesus does. And they say, why couldn't we do it? Jesus says, well, this kind only comes out by praying. Even if you're an apostle, you cannot just will this one out unless people pray. 
I can't think of anything else he, he talks about in that way. We've got the need for it. We've got the authorization for it. We've got the capability of it. But typically, we don't do it. Uh, one of my professors, before he uh, went into academics, was a lumberjack. And I think he probably is the only person in church history to go from lumberjacking to high-level New Testament academics ever. And uh, he said that when he was a lumberjack, that uh, he was, his team was hired by some company that made these chainsaws uh, to test this product. And so what that involved was when one guy was using this company's chainsaw, another would be there with a stopwatch. And so as soon as the chainsaw went into the wood, start the stopwatch. And then when it makes it all the way through the log or, you know, whatever, uh, stop it. And he said, man, we would just go at it all day long. I mean, we're talking about men, you know, working hard all day, maybe 10-hour day. And at the end of the day, the actual total of cut time would be like 30 minutes. You know, you're out there and you're slaving, you're moving wood, you're making sure there's oil and gas and everything and the chainsaw, but the actual doing of it would just be this small fraction of how much you thought you did. And that's really got to be what our prayer life is like. You're like, I'm, I'm going to take 20 minutes this morning and I'm going I'm to read my Bible and I'm going to spend time praying, but like with the just kind of getting situated in the chair and, you know, like doing my Bible and getting my coffee set up and everything, that maybe really the actual time that I prayed was a minute and a half. And again, that's not a guilt trip. That's just to say, this is who we are. So what does James give us that might actually motivate us to pray? Not out of compulsion, although really we must pray, but to do it because it's who we are. James chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering... Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we, we want to have a high view of preaching. We want to have a high view of what we're about to hear and engage in and worship. But a sermon will not turn a room full of people who struggle in prayer into praying men and women. Teaching alone will not do it. Oh Lord, we will admit freely that you must do it. So please make this part of your work in making of us praying men and women. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, uh, the sign of a good book is that you can read it and reread it and reread it and you see new things every time. And you may have books in your life that are like that. I kind of feel that way about the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, I've been reading those since I was a kid. And every time something else 
jumps off the page that I never saw. Um, fairly early on when I became a Christian, someone gave me, it was already used when they gave it to me, this, this old tattered paperback of a book about prayer, kind of a classic, called Power Through Prayer by someone named E.M. Bounds. And one of you were actually kind enough to give me a new copy of this last Christmas. Thank you, which led me to reread it. And as I was thinking about prayer this week, getting ready for the sermon, I pulled this back out, and, and what, what happens with great books happened. I've read this multiple times, and a sentence really jumped out at me. And here's the thing. A lot of the application in this book is not just to Christians in general. It's to, uh, it's to preachers about why is there so much preaching and so much of it does so little in people's lives? Why does it seem so powerless? And here's, here's what got me. Let's see here. He says, Even sermon making, incessant and taxing as an art, as a duty, as a work, or as a pleasure, will engross and harden, will estrange the heart from God, by neglect of prayer. Listen to this. The scientist loses God in nature. The preacher may lose God in his sermon. Now, I just for some reason had never noticed that line. Because here's what he's saying. It's, it's almost fashionable for evangelical Christians to take unbelieving scientists to task. You know, whether you're talking about an astronomer or someone who does medical research to say, how can you just have your hands on these wonders of God's creation day in and day out? I mean, you've got a front row seat. You know more about it than the average bear. And you, you of all people, should just see how incredible it is this couldn't have just happened. And it ought to, it ought to just make belief and, and, and enjoyment of God burst out of you. And it, it's almost as if Ian Bounds pulled a judo move on us especially on the preachers, and said, you know, it's funny, the same thing can happen with preachers. But we could sort of expand that to just Christians in general to say, it may be that we are the very people who, we're faulting the unbelieving astronomer, the non-Christian, you know, geophysicist. How can you not believe? But we're the ones who are handling God's things all the time. It's our Bible reading it's our, even, uh, it's, it's our struggling to obey Him, maybe in a really hard area of life where I want to do this, but I know God's saying this, and I'm really working on this, and meeting with others, and being in worship, or going to a community group. I'm doing all that stuff. And, and here's what Bounds is saying. If you do those things, and it's prayerless, then here's what will happen. What will happen inside of you is what happens in the person who traffics in the wonders of God and doesn't praise Him. Your heart will be hardened. Even through the Christian activity. And that is true. We of all people need desperately not just to read, not just to memorize, not just to study, not just to worship, not just to serve, not just to connect with one another, but we have got to pray. What is James saying about prayer? I want to look at a couple of things. First is this. Everything is an opportunity for prayer. Everything is an opportunity for prayer. And the second thing is normal believers can ask for abnormal answers. Normal believers can ask for abnormal answers. All right, first off, everything is an opportunity for prayer. 
This is almost the end of James's letter. What does he say? He just starts talking about, all right, what, where are you in your life? What are the scenarios? He says this, is anyone among you suffering? The Greek word he uses there has a pretty good range to it. It can mean physical suffering, sickness, chronic pain. But it can also mean what we, what we would call uh, mental or emotional distress would be part of that term. So he says, all right, are you emotionally or mentally distressed? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? All right, let's go the other way. Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him. Verse 16, what, what, about, what if you've really sinned? Maybe even sinned big time. Verse 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Now, here's what he's saying. Everybody has a baseline. You know, like, here's how I normally feel, and I don't mean when I'm on vacation and I'm getting awesome rest. I mean, like, in a normal day. Here's my baseline. All right, what do I do when I hit ups or downs or uh, a real curveball is thrown at me or I have a setback? What do I do? When I first moved to the upstate, someone gave me, it's kind of, I guess, kind of a classic upstate book uh, called Red Hills and Cotton by Ben Robertson. And I loved it. I loved that that was a gift. And that was my first book that sort of literature that came out of this region. And uh, it's written by a guy, I think he lived in Liberty, not far from here. And the very end of this book, he describes how World War II has just started. And he's sitting in the kitchen, and there's a lady named Mary sitting there. And, and Mary is the help at, uh, in, in his, in his uh, household. <clears throat> and here's how the book ends. He says, The following morning I ate breakfast as usual in the kitchen, and as usual Mary sat on the wood box by the stove and sipped coffee from a saucer. He said she liked to drink her coffee from a saucer. I switched on a radio for the latest news, and it was bad news that we heard. All of it was bad. We were retreating southeast of Manila. We were retreating northwest of Manila. In the Atlantic Ocean, the Germans had sunk a tanker. Silently we listened. Motionless, Mary held the saucer. Tears began to roll down her face. Mister, she said, we got to work. Lord God, we got to work, and we got to get down on our knees and bow our heads and pray. And that is the end of the book. And that reminds me of James. James is not a guy that pushes people toward passivity of like, you know, come see, come saw. Don't let anything bother you. Just kind of see how it unfolds. I mean, all fall, he has run us up and down the court with imperatives saying, you need to do this and you need to do that. He is not afraid to tell us what to do. But he gets to the end of this after saying, we've got work in the Christian life. And he says, what? We've got to pray. But it, how are we going to think about that? Is it just a chore? Or are we going to think about it this way? Here's my life. Here's my baseline. What happens when there's a movement in any direction? Because everybody here has kind of a default action when you hit a bump. It could be that you text your friend. I mean, in other words, if you got the flu, or you were just fired, or uh, the two of you broke up, or whatever that the first thing you would do is text my friend. Or maybe it would be, I call my friend. 
or I call my spouse. Or maybe I process it through social media. You know, I have a terrible day, and so the way I handle this is just I put on Facebook, G-R-R-R-R-R-R-R, <laughs> with no comment, you know, and I wait for people to counsel me through social media. <laughs> but, you know, ju- but like there's just there's something that I do that, you know, I'm always going to call this person like, guess what happened? Or I'm not going to believe this. You're not going to believe this. And what James is saying is this. What we must do is learn. Let's put it this way. What if the default action was first to talk to God? I was just fired and I didn't see it coming. And I must talk to God immediately and maybe at length. We just broke up and I didn't even see that coming. And there are always people I want to talk to. And there are always people I want to email. And there's somebody I really want to get on the phone with. And we're going to t- process this for an hour. But the first thing I must do is talk to God. Um, I'm happy. I'm so happy. Do any of you do this? Because this may be more autobiographical. I'm so happy. And things are going so well that I'm nervous. That I'm waiting for the shoe to drop that the first thing I need to do is talk to God about that. Now, it's one thing to say, okay, yeah, that would be great. Yes, we should do that. That should be my default action. But that doesn't mean we're going to do that. Should doesn't motivate necessarily. We should eat a certain way. We should exercise. We should do all the stuff. doesn't mean we're going to do it. Where does the motivation come from? And here's the thing. There are two things that we have got to absolutely have in our bones if we're going to be a praying people. If you don't have this, I could lecture you and browbeat you and guilt trip you and you will not pray, and I won't either. If you have this, you can learn how to really be a praying man or woman. Two things. The first is this. You've got to be convinced that God actually cares. And you've got to be convinced that He's got the power to do something about it. Here's the wonderful thing. This letter of James is not written with chapters and verses. We use those as a tool to find our way around. So what you don't have in the bulletin, you can see this if you you have a Bible, is what did James just get through saying in verse 12? He, He gave us a refrain that is echoed over and over and over in the Old Testament. And what what is it? That the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And it says that over and over and over in the Bible. And here's the amazing thing. When you hear the word, the, the, the uh, title, the Lord, in James, you may just kind of think, God. But James defined his terms at the beginning of this letter. At the very beginning of the letter, he identifies, whom does he mean by the Lord? He means the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he grew up with, if you missed that sermon. James was his younger brother. James was Joseph and Mary's son. He did not believe Jesus was the Son of God when he grew up with him. He believed it when he met the resurrected Christ, which has a funny way of getting its point across. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he identifies his brother, the God-man, he says, 
He is the Lord of glory. You would never use that title about anyone except Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, Jesus is God. He is compassionate and merciful. How do you know that? He let Himself be killed. Why? Because He is a bridegroom. And He loves a bride. Who is the bride? The bride is the church. Past, present, future. The only way that He can live with her forever in the presence of His Father, who is perfectly just, is if the wrath, the justice, that His bride deserves gets dealt with. And so He absorbs it. And He didn't do any of those things. It's because He's compassionate and He's merciful. But what else does that tell you? That He is God and He can accomplish whatever He wants. I mean, it's in, again, if you're used to this stuff, it can lose its punch. And only the Holy Spirit can make us feel and sense the reality of these things. But one man outside the city of Jerusalem almost 2,000 years ago being killed on what looked pretty much like a normal day and a normal Roman crucifixion, he vanquished sin and the devil. Because he accomplishes whatever he purposes to do. He is God. And so here's what we're saying. The only way you're going to become a man or woman of prayer is if the gospel really grabs you. Knowing that prayer is good and important and it's an important Christian discipline will not cut it. You will begin to pray when you sense, number one, He loves me. You know, my breakup or my marriage difficulties, or my excitement that we got $500 that we didn't, weren't counting on and it's just making a lot of things easier and I'm really excited. That is not going to make the national news. That's not even going to make the local news. Largely no one cares except Him deeply. And the mother tongue of the follower of Christ where you talk to God and you process your life before Him, and sometimes that looks like adoring Him, Sometimes it looks like thanking Him. Sometimes it looks like confessing sin. We've done that. Sometimes it looks like saying, How long, God? I know you're teaching me something, but I can't figure out what the lesson is, and this is wearing me out. How long? Or to pray for others? You will do that in as much as the gospel grabs you. Because if the gospel doesn't grab you, one of two things is going to be true. You're either going to have flippant views of God. And so why really entrust your heart's communication to Him? You don't take Him seriously. Or He's a boss, and you feel like you let Him down all the time. So why talk to Him and cringe? Those are prayer killers. It is the gospel that not only enables, but it motivates. But everything's an opportunity for prayer. Everything. The second thing is this. Normal believers, again, James wants us to believe. That's why he talks about you've got to look at your life and see, are you living the actions of faith? Because if you're not, a red light is blinking 
as to whether or not you have saving faith, and you've got to have saving faith. Normal faithers, normal believers can ask for abnormal things. Now look, look at the examples he uses. He uses the example of elders of a church praying for someone who's sick. And he uses the example of Elijah. And sandwiched right in between those is the second part of verse 16. What does it say? Second half of verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. You've got these two examples on each side of it. What are the examples? Uh, This first example of the elders of a church with a sick person is very hard to understand. And this was the area where I had to do the most study this week, and I'm not totally sure. (laughs) I'm not totally sure what I do. Even though we as elders of this church have prayed over sick people and anointed them with oil, at the very least it means this, at the very least, that a sick person who comes in faith, not faith in the church, not faith in the elders, faith in the Lord Jesus, to the elders of the church, which means that that person has elders, which means they've done something like join a church, throwing that in for no extra charge. They come and say, will you pray for me? And James, this is interesting, he doesn't hedge his bet and say, and if it is the Lord's will, he or she will be healed. He says, they'll be healed. What it may also mean is the person who is uh, sick unto death and cannot even go to the elders calls for the elders to come to him or her. And this is not last rites, but is anointed with oil. And oil was an occasion in the Old Testament where you were publicly reminded that you were set apart for God. A prophet or priest or king that was set apart for God was anointed with oil and just a normal believer calls for the elders and says, it's incredible, anoint me with oil and pray over me, but the prayer of faith may be taken not as their prayer, but as this dying believer's prayer. And this man or woman is reassured, not just relationally, but physically, You belong to God. He's going to raise you up on the last day. Now that should tell us something. Prayer is powerful. Whether we're talking about physical healing or the spiritual reassurance that you belong to Christ and don't let death or fear or anxiety rob you of that confidence, that that's accomplished through prayer. And the second example is of Elijah. Elijah is one of the most miracle-working people in the Old Testament. He's right up there with Moses. Does some amazing stuff. In the account in 2 Kings where he prays for it to rain, he doesn't just say, you know, stand in front of his enemies and go, okay, I'll make it rain. Lord, make it rain. The way it works is he kneels down, hunches down, And he prays for it to rain. And he asks his servant to go check if it's raining. Comes back, no. Crouches down again, hunches in, prays. Go check again. Comes back, no. And think how much time this took. Seven times. On the seventh time, the servant comes back and says, there's a cloud about the size of a man's hand that's coming this way. And Elijah pretty much says, go ahead and put mud tires on your truck because it's about to really come down. It's a miracle. Did Elijah do it by his power? No. 
Could the apostles cast out the demon by their power as apostles? No. It happened through prayer. And it was prayer where there have been successive times of, will you do this? Nothing. Will you do this? Nothing. Will you do this? Nothing. Then there's an answer when there's persistence in prayer. Now here's what that's teaching us. If the gospel is true and if it grabs you that God is incredibly kind, man, if He was mean, we would know it. We would know it. If He was a bully, we would feel it in our body and soul. But God is compassionate and merciful, but He's powerful. He can do whatever He purposes. When that grabs you because you understand the gospel, you understand what happened at the cross, you will pray for anything. Now, the more the gospel grabs you, you pray for priorities that are God's priorities, not like, okay, I'm going to test James 5. I want a yacht. And that's kind of the televangelist, you know, deal. No. Just to say, all right, I am free to dream about what could be. And I am free to pray big, audacious things that there's no way I could fix it. One example. Every person in this room could give examples of generational sins in your life and your family. And I'm not saying that to throw rocks at your parents or my parents or our grandparents. But this is something that's recognized in Scripture is that, you know what, if you were raised by people who escalate and yell, even if you hated it, you will probably escalate and yell in your relationships, in your family. If you, if, if you grew up where things were not dealt with, people did not apologize, it's swept under the rug and it's not dealt with and it just bears this yucky fruit down the road. Even if you hated that growing up with it, you do it. And you know what James 5 is saying? Man, if the gospel is true, if Jesus is really Yahweh, the Lord of glory, we can pray, Lord, there's no way I can pull this off. There's no way my good intentions can pull this off. Will you end this generational sin with me? I do not want my son or my daughter attached to this chain. Will you end it? We can pray for big things. Let me end with this. What is a big thing that all of us should be praying for? And this is something that God's people have talked about for a long time. And, man, just it, I don't like talking about my prayer life in a showboat way, but because of this sermon, something that I found myself praying this week is that, God, I cannot make me pray. And I cannot make this church pray. You've got to make us pray. Only you can put it on our hearts, but we must pray. What is one thing that would bring that about? And it's, it's what believers used to call revival. And I don't mean a revival like, we're going to have a revival at our church this Friday at 7. I don't, that, that, that definition of revival started about 120, 150 years ago. I'm talking about the old definition of revival. It is a concentrated work of the Holy Spirit. Where in a fairly condensed time, God brings all these people to Himself 
that what we saw with Holly this morning just multiplies exponentially. And people who are already Christians feel like they kind of wonder if they were before because they have such a renewed sense of the grace of God and the glory of these things that they've known about. Um, Jake was telling me that, that not once but twice, I'm kind of covetous of this, he has seen them dynamiting a few blocks up at this development that's uh, being built at the corner of Maine and Washington, just the heart of downtown. And, and I, as the downtown pastor, I want to see the dynamiting. He's already seen it twice. And, and, and I'm praying about that. But, the, uh, but he said, man, it, it's just, you know, all those uh, five-year-old little boy tendencies that love to watch bulldozers and stuff just come percolating up when you see dynamiting. And he said there's this webbing of like old tires and stuff that's put over these sections. They back everybody away from this work site. And when the dynamite goes off, it just literally lifts the ground up. And then it comes back. Just the power of what it's able to do. All right, I, I want to leave you with this. And I just, my prayer is that this gets in our bones. This is an old classic work on prayer by a guy named O. Hallisby. Let me end with this. He's talking about prayer. The name of the book is Prayer. And he's talking about revival, the old definition. And listen to what he says. We long for revivals. We speak of revivals. We work for revivals. And we even pray a little for them. But we do not enter upon that labor in prayer, which is the essential preparation for every revival. And here's what he's saying. If true revival comes, do you want to see more ministry to the poor? Not throwing checks at things. I mean like relational ministry to the poor, the homeless, the needy broken homes. Do you want to see that? It always increases in revival. Do you want to see more adult baptisms? They always, always increase in revival. Do you want to see not only this church, but the churches of our city built up and strengthened? Always happens in revival. It's never confined to one local church. Everything we say we want comes through this. And here's what he says. The work of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, can be compared to mining. The Spirit's work is to blast to pieces the sinner's hardness of heart and his frivolous opposition to God. The period of the revival can be likened to the time when the blasts are fired. The time between the revivals corresponds, on the other hand, to the time when the deep holes are being bored with great effort into the hard rock, like the rock up underneath Greenville. To bore these holes is hard and difficult and a task which tries one's patience. To light the fuse and fire the shot is not only easy, but also very interesting work. One sees results. It creates interest. Pieces fly in every direction. It, ta- it takes trained workmen to do the boring. Anybody can light a fuse. And what I want to pray for us as we close is that God would put that on our hearts as a church. There are things about us There are things about downtown Prez. There are things about the city of Greenville that you cannot teach out. You cannot teach them out. They will only be dislodged by a powerful work of the Holy Spirit. It's not that the gospel is inadequate. It's that there are things in us that don't want to believe the gospel or act in accordance with it that must be changed. I want to pray now, and I want us to pray that God, who can do anything He purposes, would bring revival to us, and to our church, and to our city.
Let's pray together. Father, for our prayerless ways, please forgive us. For our prayerless ways, please grant us repentance. Would you, O Lord, cause prayer to flow out of not guilt or not our great intentions, but really seeing Christ Jesus crucified, buried, and risen, and in that, knowing that we can tell you anything. We can ask you anything in His name. Oh Lord, revive us. Revive downtown Presbyterian. Revive the churches of our downtown and the city of Greenville. Send shockwaves through the upstate where even skeptics would have to say that has to be the hand of God. It cannot be explained any other way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.